as Gary shepherded us just then, we need to make that song our own as we sing it. It's a particularly powerful song for me uh, this weekend, for my family. It was uh, two days ago, Friday the 4th, it was the six-year anniversary of my beloved Margie going home to be with the Lord. And as we consider and think of her shining light, that while her light was, her physical light was extinguished here on earth, her spiritual light uh, exploded and blossomed in ways that we can only imagine. And even as her physical life, as her physical light was uh, dwindling here on earth, her shining life was getting brighter and brighter until the very end at the explosion of radiance that came out when she entered into the presence of her Lord and Savior. And when we think of the context, the subject of our light, it's interesting, there was, uh, history tells us there was a race in ancient Greece where the winner of the race wasn't necessarily the person that crossed the finish line first. The winner of this particular race was the one who crossed the finish line first with his torch still lit. And that's a powerful picture because for us as Christians, we understand that God has put life where there was no life before. God has opened up light where there was no light before. And we do not want to put our light under a bushel. We do not want our light to effectively or even practically get snuffed out as we would get distracted by the cares of the world. Beloved, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Our passage this morning are verses 5 through 14. And at the centerpiece of this, we have the fourth of a fifth occurrence in chapter 4, verse 1 through chapter 5, 21 of Paul exhorting the Ephesian audience and God exhorting you and me by extension to walk in a certain way. Back in chapter 4, verse 1, when Paul turned the corner on the first half of the book with the great emphasis on doctrine and truth, and the wealth that we enjoy in Christ to the deeds and the responsibilities and our walk with Christ. In chapter 4, verse 1, you may remember, Paul exhorted us, Paul exhorted the Ephesian believers to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. And then in verse 17 of chapter 4, we read that we are to no longer walk as we used to walk when we were Gentiles or pagans before our salvation. In chapter 5, verse 2, we are instructed to walk in love in the very same way that God is the embodiment of love himself because of the love that God has shed abroad in our hearts, so therefore we are to walk in love. And then in verse 8, which we have in the center of our passage here, we are instructed to walk as light. And then in verse 15 next week, we will see that we're instructed to walk in wisdom. Now, beloved, as I will read in a moment the passage before us, we will see that as Paul was writing to things that would be particularly appropriate and needful for the believers in Ephesus some 2,000 years ago to the Ephesians, we realize that 2,000 years later it is equally applicable and needful for us uh, Gilbertonians. Uh, Tim, did I get that right, if I got that? Beloved, the man who says the Bible doesn't speak to the issues of the world is either oblivious to the issues of the day or hasn't read his Bible or both. Beloved, the Bible is needful. I need the Bible to educate the world that surrounds me in my walk, in my desire to let my light shine brightly as I would walk as light before the Lord. Beloved, follow along as I read our passage that we have for us here this morning, Ephesians chapter 5 and beginning in verse 5. 
For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, what we see here is we see three calls from God on your life and on my life. If you are a new creature in Christ Jesus, if you are following in the footsteps of your Messiah as his disciple, there are three calls on your life. You are to discern the danger, display the light, and dispel the darkness. And what Paul is doing here is he's continuing this theme, this motif that we've seen throughout the whole letter of a reminder of what you were before and what you are now. He wants us to realize what we are now. He wants us to be what we are. And he even wants us to celebrate what we are. And beloved, I trust that you will find this passage, even as I did in my study this week, to be wonderfully challenging and helpfully reassuring. And my mind was drawn to Paul's words to Titus. In Titus 2, verse 14, where he gives a purpose, or one purpose, one slice, one vantage point of the purpose of Christ even dying on the cross for you and for me. Paul wrote to Titus in Titus 2, verse 14, He gave himself for us so that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Beloved, may that be our heart and mind as we unpack the riches God has hear us let's look at the first call that God has for you and for me in our walk in Christ namely to discern the danger now what Paul does here is in the same way that in verses three and four he had these strongly worded negative warnings and prohibitions against immorality in verse three and vulgarity in verse four he begins again with a strong warning and it's interesting, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this some 70 years ago in describing the state of evangelicalism in London 70 years ago. This is what the doctor said. The great slogan today, and especially in evangelical circles, is always be positive, never be negative. That is utterly unscriptural. It is the exact opposite of the Apostle Paul's method, end quote. So, beloved, in the same way, if you're here last week as we saw with the list, the trios of sins of immorality in verse 3 and the trio of sins and vices in verse 4 of vulgarity, that the negative is painfully essential in our walk. But look at what he says in verse 5. He says, 
for, and that for there ties us to what was written before. For this you know with certainty. Literally, he says, this you know knowing. What he's saying here is what I'm about to tell you, it's an axiomatic truth. You can take it to the bank. You don't need to have a deep exposition or a deep proof to understand the veracity and the applicability and the relevance of, of what I am about to tell you. And then he begins to describe these dangers that we as the children of God are to discern. And we see a danger of self, a danger from others, and then the ultimate danger, which is a danger from God for those that aren't forgiven of their sins. So, in verse 5, he says, For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. This is the danger of self for one who is still in his or her sin. Now, it's interesting. Uh, the English translations aren't super helpful here, not by virtue of any uh, lacking part on the translators themselves, but I think just limitations of the English language because the three words here in the original language aren't adjectives. They're all nouns. Now, you may remember that what we had already seen back in verse 3 was that trio of sins of immorality and then the trio of sins of vulgarity in verse 4. What he's doing here is he's saying these are three states of being, of people that are so ensconced, particularly in the sin of what he laid out in verse 3, that it characterizes their life. And in fact, the immoral, impure, and covetous man here, again, they're all nouns. They're the exact words that he gave already back in verse 3. And what Paul is describing is he's saying that these are people whose lives are settled in the sins that he talked about back in verse 3. It's what defines them. Now, I've used this illustration before, but it's very helpful. It's one thing to tell somebody you're lying. It is a whole nother level to make the accusation saying you are a liar. What we mean when, if we were to say that is lying is what characterizes, it embodies who that person is. And what Paul is saying here is the immoral man, the impure man, the greedy, covetous man, it characterizes their very being. And it's interesting, the word translated as immoral person is pornos. Again, it's the noun form of the porneia that we saw back in verse 3. It's interesting, the New King James Version translates this as no fornicator. The King James Version translates it saying no whoremonger shall inherit the kingdom of God. And then the impure person, the greedy, covetous person that's the vile stench that even flows from kind of the main center of the target of paul's concern here around the perversion of the god's good gift of intimacy the sexual sin that translates into a voracious insatiable desire for that which god forbids and so after he gives these three nouns defining the character of the people that will not inherit the kingdom of God, he kind of sums them up by saying they are an idolater. And they're an idolater and, and all of these sins. So when someone commits any of the sins of verses 3 or 4, that's a form of idolatry. But when it is a settled state of their life and is captured and defines who they are by the very definition, then he or she is in their heart and in their being an idolater. And he says they do not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And that little phrase of Christ and God literally 
it says the kingdom of the Christ and God. Now, if you're here, you may remember back in chapter 4 when we were looking at God's gift of leaders to the church, of the pastors and teachers, I talked in some detail about a particular way of Greek grammar that it used to take two items that are listed and basically say they're the very same thing. And this is precisely what Paul is saying here. He is saying the Christ and God. He is saying Jesus is both the Christ and God. He is divine. He is God himself. That's part of the beauty of even the language that Paul uses here in the midst of this warning. So that was the danger of self. But then he moves to the danger of others as he goes on from there. And what's interesting here is we know when we read through different writings of the Apostle Paul that Paul always focuses on the truth. And at the same time, Paul would not play the coward and ignore error. He would deal with error. He leads with truth, but Paul was willing, even though it may not have been what he wanted most of all, to deal with error when he needed to. And that's why in verse 6, he says, let no one deceive you with empty words, with vain, hollow words. These are words that are devoid of truth and filled with error. You may have heard the phrase, nature abhors a vacuum. Uh, better, a Christian version of that is creation abhors a vacuum. And the idea here is if you have words that are directed towards the inner man, directed towards the problem of sin and, and what plagues mankind, if they are not filled with truth, if they are devoid of truth, they will be filled with error, is what he's saying. And it's the same type of warning that Paul gave to the church in Colossae. In Colossians 2, verse 8, he said, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. See to it that no one takes you captive, that binds you with the musings of unregenerate men trying to find truth apart from God. So, beloved, by way of application, we need to follow, of course, in the footsteps of our Messiah in our walk as we desire to have our light shine. And we can even look to the example of the Apostle Paul. So we exalt truth, and when necessary, we fight error, because both are necessary. So there's a danger from self, there's a danger from others, and then Paul leaves the most significant, gravest danger for one who finds himself or herself in this state, which is namely the danger from God. God is infinitely so the greatest danger, the greatest threat, and the greatest enemy of one who is not in Christ, of one who is still under the condemnation and the judgment of God against their sin. It's along the lines of what Jesus himself said as captured by Luke chapter 12, when you may remember Jesus said, do not fear those who after they have killed you, who have power over the body and they can kill you, but whose authority ends there. I will tell you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he has killed you has authority to cast you into hell. There Jesus was saying, fear God. And so what Paul says back here in chapter 5, continuing verse 6, he says, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, when we look at Scripture, when we look at the wrath of God in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we understand that the wrath of God is reserved for unbelievers. 
believers, the children of God, the nation of Israel, the Christian in the New Testament church, we can be chastised by God because He is our loving Father. He will discipline us. But the wrath of God is reserved for those who are outside the forgiveness of Christ. And he describes the people in the state as the sons of disobedience. Uh, We saw this even back in chapter 2, verse 2, where there Paul was reminding the primarily, predominantly Gentile Ephesians that they were previously, by virtue of their pagan Gentile ways, outside the covenant promises of God, outside the forgiveness of God, and they there were also characterized as the sons of disobedience. So, whether it was back there in chapter 2 or here in chapter 5, verse 6, They are the sons of disobedience. They never met a law that they couldn't break, never met a morality they couldn't disdain or a commandment they couldn't violate. It describes us as even as we saw with God's good gift of intimacy within a lifelong commitment of a marriage between one man and one woman in verses 3 and 4, they take the good things God gives and consume them at the wrong time with the wrong people or in the wrong quantity for other areas of sin and it's interesting he says the wrath of god comes upon literally the wrath of god is coming it's already on its way by virtue of the rebellion now when we look at this verse and even when we look at the way in which the wrath of god is used in scripture there's a near-term fulfillment and there's a far-term fulfillment the near-term fulfillment is the manifestation of the effects the physical consequences of sin the mental suffering of the mind, the dissatisfaction of of that insatiable, greedy, voracious appetite that wants more and more but's never satisfied, and the confusion of life. That's the near-term manifestation of the wrath of God, which is already coming, but the ultimate realization is the far-term, namely the eternal hell that awaits those who are characterized by these sins. R.A. Finlayson, who was a professor of systematic theology at the Free Church College in Scotland, had these sage words on the subject of hell. And it's a little interesting. It's unique from what we might normally hear, but it's spot-on accurate. This is what he said, quote, Hell is eternity in the presence of God. Heaven is eternity in the presence of God with a mediator, end quote. What he is bringing out there is that To be in the presence of God eternally without forgiveness of sin, that is what the citizens of hell will experience forever and ever. But to be in the presence of God with forgiveness of sin, with newness of life, with adoption in the family of God, that is what the citizens of Zion, the citizens of heavenly Zion, the citizens of heaven will experience with forgiveness of sins. Back here, In Ephesians, as we move to verse 7, we see that Paul intended these warnings, this call to discernment of the danger as a means of sanctification. God intends this passage to be a means of your sanctification as you follow after Christ. That's why he says in verse 7, therefore, do not be partakers with them. Don't be fellow partakers together with Uh, This word translated as partakers, which literally means fellow partakers together with, only appears two times in Scripture. It appears 
back in chapter 2, verse 6, when he said Gentiles are fellow partakers with Jews, together with. There's no, the, the wall of partition has been broken down between Jew and Gentile, and the Gentiles are fellow partakers together with Jews in the grace and the mercy and the inauguration of God's good covenant promises. Now, what he's doing here is he's using the same word by way of an exhortation that we have no business being fellow partakers with these men, with these kind of sin. And notice, even with the language, the English language, Paul is not ruling out friendship with the fornicators and the impure people and the greedy, covetous people. He is absolutely ruling out partnership. Again, not ruling out friendship, but he is ruling out partnership. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. Even as we will go through the rest of the passage, we will see God has a good and perfect goal and purpose for you and I to be in this world, to be around these men, but by God's grace and mercy, with the protective power and the indwelling might of the Holy Spirit, that we can be in and around these people and not be polluted and contaminated by that. Sinclair Ferguson captured this well. He said this, what Paul is saying here is that we cannot be heirs to a heavenly kingdom while living as citizens of the sinful world. So we live in this citizen world, but our ultimate passport stamp is not Gilbert or the United States. Our ultimate passport stamp is heaven. And then he continues on with one more powerful reminder of what we were. He says, verse 8, For you were formerly darkness. Turn for a moment back to chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. We'll remember when Paul was laying the foundation of the wonder and the majesty of God's amazing grace. In verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, he gave this powerful dialogue or powerful discourse on what our life was like before chapter 2 verse 1 and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh indulging the desires of the flesh of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So we were told and reminded that we weren't sick, we weren't weak, we didn't have some kind of life-threatening disease. According to chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we were dead, depraved, and damned by virtue, condemned by virtue of our state. And what he says here, and by the way, just before I leave that, you'll remember then the very next verse, at the beginning of verse 4, but God, but God. So Paul moves from the horrifically tremendous bad news to the wonderfully joyous good news, the work of God in our lives. But back here in chapter 5. So you were formerly darkness, darkness, the kingdom of Satan, sin, rebellion, ignorance, blindness, falsehood, hatred. And we know that darkness is where disease flourishes. And what's fascinating here is Paul doesn't say you were formerly in darkness. He says you were darkness. It's not just that we lived in a dark world, but darkness was within us. Darkness emanated from us. 
We were blind and we couldn't make ourselves see. Uh, John 3, verse 19, the light is coming to the world and men, what? Men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. And it's interesting, there's a binding, bondage, captivity, prison aspect of darkness. People will say, and they may say, and if you're here this morning and not following Jesus as Lord and Savior, you may even have in your mind thinking, well, I, I don't want to be a Christian because I don't want to give up my freedom. But, but the freedom that one thinks of in that way is not a true freedom. It's the freedom of running around in a cave in pitch blackness trying to find a way out. That's not freedom. That's not true freedom. Friend, if you come to Christ, if you become a Christian, if God saves you, you don't give up your freedom to become a Christian. When God saves you, you give up your bondage. You are emancipated. You are delivered from the bondage of the will into true freedom well that was the first call we are called you are called to discern the danger the second call of god that we see in the middle of verse 8 forward is we are called to display the light and what paul has been saying through the whole letter and he says here in particular is i'm going to tell you how you should live but first i'm going to remind you of what you are so you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So what makes a person a Christian is not that we've found some measure or glimpse of the light and held on to it or taken hold of it and applied it. Rather, God has put life where there was no light before and God has made light where there was no light before. You now are no longer darkness. You are light. We know that Jesus is the light of the world, is he not? And what he's saying here is you also are light. You are a lamp. You are a luminary. You're not, you are reflecting the light of Christ. You're refracting the light of Christ in different directions. And you are a light source yourself. Matthew 5, verse 14, in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ told his true disciples, you are the light of the world. Same language, same thinking of the beauty of what Paul is saying here. And beloved, that means you've been delivered from the dark, desolate plains of speculation into the sun-bathed land of true knowledge. We've been rescued from the miserable dungeon, uh, dungeon of bondage into the magnificent palace of liberty. When we put together all some of the beautiful truths that we see here as we go through Ephesians, God fills you with life. God fills you with light, and you become a light source, and God fills you with power. Even the very same power by which God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, that's the same power that God fills you with as he fills you with life and with light himself. The Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter 2.9, said, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the apostle Peter says God has called you out of darkness into light. The apostle Paul says you were darkness, but now you are light. And the difference, the point of transition, the fulcrum point, is the illumination of the Spirit of God in the darkness of the human heart. And 
there's a wondrous aspect, there's a miraculous point of transition, of rebirth that we can't see, but from the human experiential standpoint, it might be somewhat similar to when your mom wakes you up in the morning. So some of us have to go back a few years to remember when our mom would wake us, and some children here you may be able to immediately realize, but you're, you're in a deep, deep sleep, and at first all you hear is some kind of noise. Th then you hear a voice. Then you hear your name being called, and your eyes open up, and you see the light, and you wake up. Beloved, in the same way, God takes you who are darkness and makes you light. He awakens you, and he makes you arise from the deadness and death grip of your sin into the newness of life in Christ. And from that, what he says, and this is where we get to the center point in the middle of verse 8, because of what you are now, therefore, look, walk as children of light. Walk, and this is a standing order. It's a continual practice, the continual order from God. Walk as children. You are light, so therefore walk as children of light. And what a tremendous contrast, uh, the tremendous contrast between the previous description of the sons of disobedience to now we are reborn as children of light. And light and darkness, these are two antithetical realms that cannot coexist. They can't mix. There's no neutrality. There's no happy hunting ground or no man's land between light and darkness. God created light and darkness. And in Genesis 1 verse 4, Moses tells us that when God saw the light, it was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Um, the first right understanding of that is the optic nature of light and darkness but metaphorically speaking both light and darkness are used both intellectually and morally throughout scripture light in scripture refers to truth and holiness metaphorically speaking darkness refers to ignorance and error and light and darkness are eternal opposites paul wrote to the church in corinth second Corinthians 6, verse 14, what fellowship has light and darkness? And it's a rhetorical question because the answer we know is none. There is no fellowship. There is no mixture of light and darkness. Beloved, light is the promise of hope and joy. Darkness is the threat of despair and misery. So through all of Scripture, but especially back here in Ephesians 5, Paul tells us that you are either light or darkness you are either a christian or you're not a christian there's no mean between them you can't be half a christian and that's what he said in verse eight now if you look at verse eight it says at the end walk as children of light and then it picks up the sentence continues in verse 10 trying to learn what is pleasing to the lord but what he does in verse 9 is he does something that he has been wont to do and he has often done through ephesians he has a brief interruption of his train of thought and puts in, and maybe even in your English translation, you might even have it in parentheses, this parenthetical thought of Paul where he says, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. So it's interesting because, as we've already said here this morning, there was a trio of words for immorality in verse 3, a trio of words for vulgarity in verse 4, then a trio of states, of nouns, of men in verse 5. Now he gives in verse 9 a trio of virtues, of goodness and righteousness and 
truth, goodness, that basically being free from defects and beautiful, useful, something of moral excellence, righteousness of the being aligned with God and God's plan and God's will as he reveals it in scripture, and truth, integrity, honesty, trustworthiness. It's interesting, in, in one way, if you think of it from the perspective of these fruits of virtues being manifest in our lives, the goodness has a lot to do with how we relate to one another. Righteousness has maybe more to do with how we relate to God. And if we think of truth and the integrity and the honesty, we could understand in one sense almost how we uh, relate to ourselves, what's on the inside. Having said this, and as we think of this trio of virtues, we should understand that we are not interested in goodness, righteousness, and truth in and of themselves. We're not concerned with them as abstract virtues. There are many honorable pagans that have a high level of interest of goodness and righteousness and truth under the umbrella of God's common mercy. But our standard, the reason for our motivation is in light of, with the revelation of, with the blessing of what Paul tells us earlier in chapter, in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, be imitators of God. God is perfectly good. God is perfectly righteous. God is perfectly true. And in fact, the very nature of God is what defines all three of those words. And it is with our heart and desire and intent to be imitators of God that we are concerned with these virtues. Or even back in chapter 4, verse 24, when Paul was really bringing out strongly this whole concept of putting off the old man and putting on the new man, in verse 24, he said, put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. Or we can think of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, verse 22. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. That is our motivation. And we should understand this. I've mentioned before last week that Paul is not admonishing the culture here. He's addressing the church. So Paul is not instructing or calling for unsaved people to stick these virtues on like you'd put a, an ornament on a Christmas tree. Ornaments look nice and they're wonderful, but they're lifeless, they're dead, they're, they're sterile, and you can put them on the Christmas tree and then you can take them off. No, the virtues he's talking about here are described as fruit. They blossom and grow and come from the inside out. And we should also understand that there's no such thing as a no-fruit Christian. Now, the fruit may be like little dried-up, shriveled little raisins, but, but there will be something, there will be some measure of life because in Adam, we were all dead. In Christ, we are all alive. That's the point that he's bringing out. Well, he then picks up from verse 8 back in verse 10, walk as children of light, and the New American Standard translates it, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Uh, the word translated there, uh, it means examine, put to the test, prove. In fact, the very same word that's translated as trying to learn here, I think is translated better in, in a better fashion in Romans 12 too, where you have a very similar thought process around this whole idea that Paul's bringing out at the broader level here. In Romans 12 too, Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
so that you may prove, same word, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So whether it is understanding what is good and acceptable and perfect in Romans 12 too, or proving what is pleasing to God in chapter 5, verse 10, we understand that is defined for us where? It's defined in the word. This tells us everything we need to know about what is pleasing to the Lord and what is good and right and acceptable in his sight. But he continues on in verse 11, and do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Soon koinoneo, don't fellowship together with the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Now, if you've been here as we've been going through Ephesians, you'll remember that throughout chapters 2 and 3, Paul basically, uh, in some cases, made up these composite words or used these composite words where he takes this little preposition together with soon and he brings it together to talk about our union with Christ and our union with one another, the Jew and Gentile union with each other. In chapter 2, verse 5, we are alive together with Christ. We are raised up together with Christ. We are seated together with him. In verse 19, chapter 2, the Jew and Gentile together are fellow citizens, fitted together, built together. Chapter 3, verse 6, fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers. All these words are taking the beautiful picture of the new life in Christ and the new community together in a positive way. What Paul does here is he does the same kind of dynamic on the negative side. Back in verse 7, don't be partakers together with that kind of man. Here, don't be fellowshipping together with these kind of unfruitful deeds of darkness. So the deeds of darkness are unfruitful. They're a fruitless, dark system, dull minds and hard hearts that are dead and sterile. And we know for example, that Jesus, when we think of fruit, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said you can tell what kind of tree it is by what kind of fruit it bears or by no fruit. Good fruit, good tree. Bad fruit or no fruit, bad tree. Same dynamic that Paul is bringing out here. And we are to prove what is good and pleasing to God and still under the umbrella of displaying light, we reprove the deeds of darkness. At the end of verse 11, it says, but instead even expose them. So it is a both and. It is both a proving what is the will of God, what is right and perfect, and it is reproving what is against it. It says, but instead even expose them, and that has the idea of reproving it. Because the idea is darkness cloaks deception. Light exposes, light reproves. And so what he's saying here is you prove with your lives, with your light shining brightly, as you walk as light in this world, your life proves truth, proves righteousness, proves what is good, and also it reproves error. It reproves unrighteousness. It reproves or rebukes what is evil. And one thing here. There are, there's a sector of Christians, kind of, you know, the heresy club, the, the heresy hunter club, I should say, the heresy hunter club that just loves, yeah, I, I love to reprove and rebuke error. And, and, and there's a place for that to be sure. But in the context here, in terms of the light and the fruit of a godly righteous life, what is 
more at the center of this reproving is the light of your life rather than the words of your mouth. We reprove the unfruitful deeds of darkness with the life of goodness and righteousness and truth. So Paul says there's no accommodation with the doers of the sin or the deeds of the sin. And there's no isolation. We have to be in the world to have our life reprove these kind of deeds of darkness. Again, we're in the world, but not of the world. And uh, we know this from uh, the them in verse 7. The, if you look at verse 7, it says, do not be partakers with them. The them there are the people. It's the doers in verses 5 through 7. But the them in verse 11 do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. The them in verse 11 is the deeds. So again, first were the doers, then it is the deeds. And also there's a contrast. The fruit, the good fruit of verse 9 comes from the inside. The bad deeds of verse 11 is something done on the outside. Again, part of the beautiful work of the indwelling Holy Spirit who enables us to do these things. Verse 12, he continues, as we wrap up this displaying the light. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. And the idea is we don't need to wade through the muck to reprove these kind of acts. Just live holy lives. We don't need to drink from the poisonous well of sin to be able to point someone away from that well. And it's interesting, the Greek word translated as disgraceful here comes from the same root as the Greek word that is translated as filthiness in verse 4, in the vulgarity aspect there. And the point that Paul is making here in verse 12 is those unfruitful deeds of darkness can't be allowed to spread and contaminate in the body of Christ. It's similar to what the Apostle Peter again said, this time in 1 Peter 2.1. He said, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Or Martin Lloyd-Jones had this to say, he said, quote, the characteristic of the life of the Christian is there's no deceit in it. Nothing hidden or underhanded or dishonest. Nothing that savors of hypocrisy or pretense. And so, beloved, we are to display our light. And it's interesting if you think of a prism. A prism will take uh, a ray of white light and it'll reflect the light according to the wavelengths of the different colors of the spectrum in all different angles. And so what Paul is saying here is you are light, so you refract, you reflect the light of Christ in all directions, and you are a light source yourself. And as we look at this, we realize there's an already not yet aspect of it. We pray, Lord, help us to live our lives as men and women at home in the daylight with the light of the scripture illuminating the pathway of your will in our life, God, and radiating from our hearts on our life's journey. So you are called to discern the danger. You are called to display the light. Lastly, you are called to dispel the darkness. We display light and we dispel darkness. Verse 13. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. The idea here is that darkness hides the ugly realities of life, of evil. And 
what we have here is a little bit of a turn to almost an evangelistic bent. Now, as I've already mentioned in this sermon again, Paul's not admonishing the culture. He's addressing the church. But Paul had the same dynamic there as we have today and the same one that Christ had. Christ said there will be tares even among the wheat. So the true church is the gathering of believers, but there will be unbelievers in the audience of Paul's audience, uh, Paul's uh, people that he's writing to. And what he's saying here is he wants them and wants us to understand that the gates of repentance are open. And when he says everything that becomes visible is light, this is our witness, this is the light of one soul making another light. And it's a lesson for us as believers by God's mercy and grace that we understand holiness ought to be attractive. We can think of Jesus. Jesus was perfectly holy. He was perfectly righteous. Yet he was like a magnet and drew people to him. Sinners came to him. He dined with sinners. It's a reminder for us that holiness ought to be attractive. It ought to be loving. It ought to be enticing. It ought to be charming. It ought to draw people. And that is what he is telling us. And that is what he's telling the people in his audience that don't know him as Lord and Savior, that there is a way of escape. In John 3, verses 19 through 21, in verses 19 through 20, there's the great powerful language of how men despise the light and love the darkness because of the wickedness of their heart. You read these words. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. That's the bad news, that's the sobering news. But verse 21 gives good news. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. And then back here in chapter 5, we finish with a quotation. Verse 14, it's a quotation, a partial quotation from Isaiah 60, verse 1. Ephesians 5, 14, For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Isaiah 60, verse 1, you read these words. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And there are other verses from Isaiah that might have been part of kind of a composite uh, thinking in Paul's mind when he wrote that. Some people also think that this little phrase, and depending on your English Bible, it might be set apart as some kind of poetic type of uh, uh, staging in, in the Bible, that this verse 14 might have been a very early Christian hymn or chorus that they were beginning to sing in talking about the beauty and the wonder of God's work of salvation in their lives. It's interesting, William Booth, who was the founder of Salvation Army, who had a tremendous heart and desire to minister to the physical needs of the poor and the oppressed, he also understood that that was a surface issue. The ultimate issue was the need of the inner man. This is what William Booth said. He said, to get a man soundly saved, it is not enough to put him in a new pair of trousers or to give him regular work or even to give him a university education. These things are all outside a man, and if the inside remains unchanged, you have wasted your labor. 
So what William Booth understood is what the Apostle Paul is saying here in verses 13 and 14 as part of your call and my call to dispel the darkness. Namely, education won't do the trick. Renovation won't do the trick. Legislation can't do this thing. Manipulation won't do it. It needs creation. It needs God to turn on light where there is darkness. It needs God to put light where there was no light before. And when he does that, the light of Christ shines. Luke 1, verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Beloved, friend, this is where night retreats and the shadows fall away. This is where sadness is turned into gladness. There is light where there was previously darkness. There is safety where there was danger. Freedom where there was bondage. Joy where there was previously dreariness, sadness, discouragement, despair, and depression. And for us as believers, even though God has awakened us at our conversion, it's an already not yet. We are to continually be awakened. That's why Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. And I'll finish with the great words of the deep theological hymn writer, this little light of mine I'm going to let it shine. Beloved, please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you, uh, Lord, again for making us alive. We thank you for arising us from our sleep. We thank you, Lord, for giving us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness, to understand what is pleasing to you, to understand what is right and perfect. Uh, thank you, Lord, for the blessing we have to demonstrate goodness and righteousness and truth in our lives. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness because we know we fall short of that on this side of glory. Forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that we can worship you more in spirit and truth, so that we can love one another at greater levels and that we can be a more effective witness to those outside your body, that the light that shines within us would dispel the darkness of doubt and despair and gloom and hopelessness and replace it with the beauty of the hope and trust and faith and love that we enjoy in you. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and we now come to the communion table. Amen.